So tonight we are going to start a study on uh, the end times, uh, things related to the end times. And uh, I, I think that as we go through this study, we'll see that there are uh, a lot of things that are kind of in our culture about what's supposed to happen in the end times, uh, things that people claim and, and a lot of people buy into. And it's, it's not just that this is a uh, sizable or there's a lot of beliefs on this subject, the end times is big business. Um, if you go into any religious bookstore, uh, and really even any general market bookstore, you're going to find all sorts of books uh, about the end times. There are movies, there are television shows uh, about the end times. And so the end times is not just uh, a doctrine, it's, uh, it's big business. Uh, and so there's a lot of attention going on in our culture about that. And so over the next several weeks, Lord willing, we'll be looking at some of the things in our culture, some of the things that people claim are supposed to take place and, and line those up with Scripture. Uh, however, next week, uh, Lord willing, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be at Liberty uh, for their summer series. They're kind of off, uh, have a different schedule, so uh, Mark is going to be filling in with me uh, for me. Uh, I, I told him he had the freedom to teach um, whatever subject he wanted to teach. I didn't want to kind of pin him in on end time. So, I don't <laughs> so uh, he'll be teaching for me next week, and then Lord willing, the week after that, we'll get back into it. But what are some of the subjects that we are going to be looking at? What are some of the things that are really in people's minds when they think about the end times, or these are the things that are going to happen in the end of days? Well, we're going to be looking at things like, well, tonight we're just kind of introducing uh, the subject, and then we'll we'll uh, get into it more later. But will there be a variety of signs indicating the end? There are some people that believe that that scripture, particularly uh, a few passages of the scripture, uh, are given as signs for the end. That when you see these things taking place, uh, that they are telling us that these are pointing to the end times. Now, when you think about the end times, though, we'll not get too far into this, uh, but when you think about the end times, right, the second coming, what is the number one thing that Jesus said about the, his, his coming? It's going to happen like a thief in the night. And so this idea of uh, will there be signs that say Jesus' return is soon? Will there be a rapture? There are a lot of people that believe that prior to the end times, short period before the end times, all the world's Christians will suddenly disappear. Right? Uh, will be taken from the earth. And is this something that the Bible teaches? There's a lot of people that believe it. There's a... There's a uh, a sizable book series called Left Behind. It's based on the idea that some people will be taken and others will be left behind. Right? You may have seen, you don't see them as much anymore, but a, a decade or two ago, maybe two or three now, you would every so often pass a car that had a bumper sticker that says, Caution, car will swerve when rapture appears. Because right? the assumption that... Um, they're going to be taken, and so the car is going to swerve. I did see one, 
and I apologize to my mother-in-law for saying this one. Uh, there is one I've heard about that said, caution, in case of rapture, car will swerve as mother-in-law takes the wheel. That's not my mother-in-law. So there's this, uh, the, one of the key scenes in the, uh, the Left Behind movie is on this airline, it was a big Boeing jet, and suddenly there's all these people missing. Fortunately, the pilot wasn't one of those raptured, right? And so you have this idea that suddenly there's going to be all these people missing. Well, is that, is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that connected with that sudden disappearance that there will be a time of great tribulation, of great affliction? You know, this idea that there will be a period where um, people will experience, particularly the idea is that when all the world's Christians are, are raptured, people will suddenly say, oh, the Christians were right, and so some people will start converting, and then during the tribulation, they'll face persecution. Is that what Scripture teaches? What about Israel? And a lot of these the thinking of a lot of these people that, that speak and write about the end times, Israel plays a very important role. And this is not just a doctrinal debate here as well. A large part of the reason why we are so connected to Israel as a country is predominantly two things. For the longest time, it was the only democracy in the Middle East. And secondly... It was because of Christian leaders who believed Israel was to play an important role in the end times. So this has political consequences as well. It's not just a case of doctrinal dispute. Will there be a ruler that arises over the world, one world leader, an evil leader known as the Antichrist, and will he lead the world into the last battle, the battle of Armageddon. So there's a lot of people that, that are kind of expecting that there will be this grand battle between good and evil that will mark you know, kind of the end. And then in the middle of this, uh, Jesus will return. And so there's a lot of people talking about Armageddon. And are we, uh, you know, anytime you have had, in the past couple decades, you've had... Uh, concerns about a military conflict or you've had people ramping up weapons production, there have been these people saying, we're on the road to Armageddon. Right? Whether that was the first Gulf War, uh, whether it's been with the Cold War, with other things going on in Russia now, there are people thinking, right, this is ramping up to the Battle of Armageddon. With that thinking, there is also the belief that Jesus, when he returns, will establish a kingdom on earth centered in Jerusalem, unless you're Mormon and then it's in Missouri. I've never been to Missouri, but I'm assuming that'd be a nice place to set up a kingdom, I guess. And he will reign on earth for a thousand years. Is this what, what Scripture teaches? And so we'll take a look at some things. Uh, when we look at that. What is Jesus preparing 
for us. There are some people, uh, it used to be predominantly Jehovah's Witnesses teaching this, but more and more you hear it from other quarters that people will be living on some type of reconstituted or remade earth. Right? That this, this planet we're currently on will somehow be remade, reformed, uh, uh, and inhabited after the second coming. Is that what Scripture teaches, that, that this is where we're going to end up? Uh, or does it teach something different? Then we'll get into talking about some things about the Last Judgment, what the Scripture teach about that, what the Scripture teach about the resurrection. Now, one of the things that uh, has kind of become a part of Christianity is our belief in the immortality of the soul. And so we talk about our immortal souls. And we kind of have this, this notion of, uh, you know, that the, the end times, uh, or not the end times, but, but when, we, uh, when we go to heaven, we're going to be these kind of disembodied souls, just kind of floating around. Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches the resurrection of the body. Right? And so we'll be talking about some things related to the resurrection, and then, of course, thinking about what does Scripture teach us about heaven? What does it teach about hell? Uh, there was a popular book a couple of years ago, probably about four or five years ago, uh, written by a fairly popular religious author that essentially claimed that Scripture has the possibility of there being a backdoor to hell, essentially. Right? That, that everybody will eventually submit to God's grace. Well, is that what Scripture teaches? Right. Or does Scripture teach that there is a place where people will be punished eternally? Right. And so we'll be looking at some things, uh, Lord willing, about that. All of these things, all of these doctrines, these ideas, are sometimes referred to by the term eschatology. It comes from a couple of Greek terms, uh, particularly having to do with last things, right, the study of last things. And so what we're going to be looking at is eschatology. Now, it's important, I think, first for us to say, why study eschatology? Here's why I get to the part of audience participation, class participation. Right? This is not a rhetorical question. Why study things about the last times, the end times? Okay, be better prepared for it. It's coming. I mean, we, we believe that the earth is not going to last forever. We know that we are not going to last forever, so uh, it's coming. So it would be good to be prepared for it. Why else? The Bible talks about it. Right? It is a scriptural subject, so it's uh, certainly uh, something we should pay attention to. Why else? Yes.
yeah, th this is, this is a, a subject that is connected with a lot of emotion, particularly, as Joy pointed out, fear. Uh, even people that, that have some sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're connected with Christianity generally, uh, they even, even uh, people that would claim to be followers of Christ are fearful about the end times. I've mentioned this before in other classes. You know, people that are, are scared uh, or, or afraid when, uh, you know, they uh, get $6.66 change back. All right, I got to buy something else or put something back so I don't get $6.66 let me ask you this. Do you ever remember of singing song 666 in your songbook? What is it? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I knew that. What is it? The Spacious Firmament on High, which is a really good song. It's a really challenging song. It's Haydn. But, um, we, we, even people who might not normally attach meanings to things will, will have these kind of fearful responses to, to things related to the end times. And especially, you know, as, as Joy pointed out, uh, uh, people that have some mental challenges as well, right, really latch on to these things sometimes and are really concerned about these things. Why else would it be important to study them? Yeah, so uh, uh, Janice kind of mentions another type of emotional response to this, the, the desire for comfort, right? thinking about people that have gone on before, you know, people that we've loved. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the, you know, the kind of the opposite of fear, you know, having comfort uh, in certain things. I think having confidence, right? kind of connected with that comfort, right? Being confident, I know where I'm going. Right? Yeah, being aware of the options, right? I mean, <laughs> um, if you know that there is a place where you could spend eternity in punishment, is, is that an option you want to take? <laughs> right? Probably most of us say no, we, we don't want that option. Anything else you can think of about why we would study it? All right, kind of connected with that idea of preparedness. Not only should we be prepared to, for the end times, but to, to answer some of these things that people um, you know, claim. I, I remember uh, years ago, uh, in 1987, when I was years old, and uh, being on a train ride, I don't know if you remember this since you're a little bit younger than I am, uh, and somebody's walking around passing out these pamphlets on 88 reasons why the rapture was going to happen in 88. And there was a lot of discussion in 1988 about, I think it was supposed to be some sort of date in October. Right. And so, you know, are you prepared to answer somebody that has those beliefs? Right. Well, that's a, a good reason to, to know some things about this as well.
Why do you think, though, that there is so much difference among people? I mean, not just the, there is a rapture, there's not a rapture. I mean, kind of, you know, two options. That's not the, the end of it. When you get talking and looking into some of these things, there are people that believe the rapture is pre-tribulation. Right? So the rapture happens, and then the tribulation. Well, there's others that say, no, the, tribu- it's the, the rapture is mid-trib. Right? It'll happen in the middle of the tribulation. No, no, the rapture is post-trib. It's going to happen after the tribulation. Right? So you, you have all, it's not just a matter of right, rapture or no rapture. It's rapture's going to take place then. No, it's going to take place later. No, it's going to take... Why do you think there's so much difference among people about things related to the end times? I mean, you, you have some things, I mean, just our general popular culture, and Janice points out, you know, this kind of um, minor literature of, you know, I, heaven is for real, right? This four-year-old kid that uh, had an accident and supposedly visited heaven. Uh, or, you know, 90 minutes in hell, or whatever else, you know, in this popular culture. And so, it, you know, there's a lot of prevalence of this in our popular culture, and people, you know, buy these books, read these, uh, watch these movies, etc. Patrick. Yeah, the, the, that's a good point. There's a lot of difference on just about every subject in the Bible, especially when we, in some of those that we would say are, are clearer. So when we come to something that's a little bit more complicated, it's no surprise we have greater differences. Anything else? Joy. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of uh, teachers out there right, who have caught on to a particular verse and, and feel like that's revealed some sort of truth to them, and then they start promoting it, and then, uh, of course, it, uh, it does kind of uh, mutate and change uh, in the retelling. So the question, I think, that, that we'll kind of be looking at the rest of the quarter is, what can we know? We, we shouldn't get overwhelmed by the difference 
Say, oh, there's just so much difference, we can't know anything. No, I, I think there's some things that we can know. Now, yes, there are some things that we can't know because God hasn't revealed that to us. What, what heaven is going to look like. What my resurrected body is going to look like. God hasn't revealed that to us. But there are a lot of other things that we can know about these, these items, about the end times, that I think are important for us to know uh, related to that. Let's turn now to looking at a historical overview of how, what kind of teachings and beliefs and all sorts of things have, have taken place. And we don't have the time to do, you know, like an overview of Judaism the whole way through to the 20th century. So instead, I'm going to predominantly focus on the colonies, the American colonies in the United States. And this is going to kind of be a little bit of a whirlwind tour. We're not going to go into a lot of depth here. But I do want to highlight some things that, that even though we might not doctrinally agree with, there are some ways in which I think some of these things have uh, exerted some influence on our ways of thinking, both as Americans and as, and as Christians in the United States. Let's start in the colonial period. <clears throat> now, in thinking about some things in the colonial period, people thinking about last things, let me introduce you to something that maybe you didn't get in your history books. Christopher Columbus. Now, when we think of Christopher Columbus, what do we normally think of? Right, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Uh, not the Nina and the Pinto. Uh, that was. But we think about exploration. We think about uh, Columbus. Uh, you know, uh, he was he was trying to get to India, and he he didn't get there, and all those other kinds of things. However, Columbus was really into this end times thinking. And part of his voyage he saw as kind of a participation in the end times. In 1492, Columbus had some eschatological expectations. Now, it just doesn't rhyme as much. But he kept a book of prophecies, and he would record these prophecies in, in the, out of the Bible and in, in other texts all in this interest in the end times. He thought that you know, the end times were getting ready to take place and there was going to be a Spanish emperor established in Jerusalem. And part of his voyage was connected with that. And so you know, this, this was very much a part of, of the thinking in the 15th century. And that, of course, brought over some things to the colonies. And there was a lot of expectation that this discovery of this new world was part of the end times. Uh, and I think we can even see that in the, uh, the Puritans, right? the pilgrims, the Puritans. <laughs> the Puritans certainly came to the colonies for religious freedom. And that was very much a part of it. But they too had their kind of end time speculation of what they were coming to do. <clears throat> Just as they were uh, you know, kind of getting off the boat or getting ready to get off the boat, uh, Governor Winthrop preaches this sermon 
where he likens the, the grand experiment they're going on to to being a city on a hill, right? Coming from Matthew chapter 5. And there's this expectation that, you know, these are kind of the end times. There's going to be this establishment of this great community and the world's going to see, particularly England's going to see. There are other things we could talk about uh, with the colonial period as well, but, but even in those very early stages of our country, there are these expectations that the end times are coming soon and somehow this land, these people are participating in that. This also shows up uh, in, in our wars. In the various wars we've been involved in, there has always been, there, there's always kind of this level among some people that, like, this is it. Now, Often it's been a very positive thing, particularly in the wars that have taken place uh, in the North American continent. You know, for the Revolutionary War, there were a lot of people that believed that, that this was prep, uh, preparatory to ushering in this reign of Christ on earth. And so there's this assumption that, that what, the, you know, what the people we call the founders, what they're doing is moving us closer to the end times. This great great country that they're developing isn't just a a good government, it's moving us toward kind of this new age, so to speak. They wouldn't have used that term. Um, But this idea of they're they're ushering in something grand and great. More negatively, the revolution, there's a lot of positive things about what this is ushering in. Negatively, we see a similar type of thing when it comes to the Civil War. There's a lot of expectation in the Civil War that uh, something terrible is happening beyond the political things related to slavery, the separation of the Union. There is something grand eschatological taking place in this. I'll give you one example, perfect example of this. Battle Hymn of the Republic. When you think of the battle hymn of the Republic, that's end times language, right? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Right? He has loosed his faithful lightning where the grapes of wrath are stored. He is, or no, he's trampled out the vintage. I know this, I promise. He's trampled out the vintage where his grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Right? What's Christ is coming to judge. Christ is coming. You know, there's this terribleness to this. And so there's this this kind of expectation of there's something grand in the plan of human civilization that's taking place. The 19th century especially was a time of a lot of that expectation. And most people that would claim to be Christian in the 19th century fell into one of two camps. They were either post-millennial or pre-millennial. Now let's explain those terms because we're going to kind of be using them quite a bit over the next couple of weeks. The term millennial is related to the term, or, or describes what? What does millennial describe? All right, a thousand years. A thousand years is a millennium. All right, so the notion here based on Revelation chapter 20, which talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ, 
has, so it has to do with this idea of a thousand-year reign. Post-millennials believed, essentially, that's a very, very basic overview, but that society was getting better and better, and then eventually society would get so good it would inaugurate this thousand-year reign. And then at the end of that thousand-year reign, Christ would return. Right? So there'd be this thousand-year period, peace, prosperity, innovation, etc., ends with Christ's second coming. So post-millennial, after the millennium. Others were pre-millennial. They essentially believed society's really kind of getting kind of worse. It's not going to change outside of something supernatural happening, Jesus will return, and that will bring in the millennium. So Jesus would come before the millennium, pre-millennial. So not only is this a question about the dating of Christ's return, there's also a notion here about how you view society. Because when you think about how you think about the end times, that has often a significant impact on how you think about other things. So in the 19th century, if you kind of remember back to your history, a lot of positive things were happening. Industrial revolution, uh, exploration, technology developing. uh, You know, you're in in those early years, this, this euphoria over the American experiment. There's a lot of positive things. A lot of people believed. Society's getting better. There were others that were kind of pessimistic, and when you hit the Civil War, and then when you get past the Civil War, and especially by the time you hit World War I, more people are pessimistic about human nature than they are optimistic, like they were in the early 19th century. In the 19th century also, you had individuals who through their study of different prophetic literature, developed some distinct beliefs that had some significant impact. One of those was a man named William Miller. Miller had um, become a Baptist during the War of 1812. Uh, he was kind of a deist, not that really concerned about religion until he served in, World War, uh, in uh, the War of 1812, and that kind of got him thinking about religious things. And so he becomes a Baptist, he starts studying, and he's particularly interested in prophetic literature like Daniel, Revelation, and he really became convinced that those books had a message for the common people and a message that they could understand. And so he decides that he really wants to understand these books, and and then he's going to share this message. So he becomes a preacher. And sometime in the early 1830s, he becomes convinced, based on his study, that he knows when Christ is going to return. It will be sometime between 1843 and 1844. I don't want to spoil it for you. But he didn't. So where does Miller get this idea? Well... Like a lot of other people, Miller did, and and Joy mentioned this, this kind of 
proof texting types of things. Particularly, he came across a variety of passages in the book of Daniel that talked about numbers. So one of the first passages that kind of helps us understand where 1843 comes from is Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel is told a prophecy about it would be 2300 days until the sanctuary would be cleansed. Miller reads this and says, okay, the sanctuary being cleansed, that must refer to the second coming. It doesn't. It refers to the temple. But he thinks that this has to do with the second coming. He says 2,300 days, but it's been more than that since this prophecy and the second coming hasn't happened, so maybe I'm not understanding this well. Well, he also looks at some other prophetic literature. He looks at Jeremiah, but then he also looks at Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is, is uh, it's revealed to Daniel about a prophecy of 70 weeks. And that from the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the time of the Messiah, there would be 70 weeks. And so Miller starts to, Miller comes to the right conclusion that what is being revealed there is not days, but years. So 70 weeks refers to 70 weeks of years, which meant 490 years. When did Jerusalem start to be rebuilt? start being rebuilt in 457 B.C. You add 490 to that, you get 33, right? A.D., when Jesus was crucified. At least, you know, that's kind of what he's thinking. So, if in Daniel chapter 9, each day in that prophecy represented a year, the 2300 days prophecy, each of those days must represent a year. So 2300 minus 457 equals 1843. Now there's no year zero, so he hedged his bets and said sometime between 1843 and 1844. So... He says it'll be, and then March 21st is actually the day he chooses because uh, that's when the Jewish calendar started that year. And so he says this in the 30s. He starts eventually promoting this idea, gains a sizable following, almost really starts a new denomination because a lot of people are coming to him from other denominations. Even influences uh, some members of the church, Walter Scott, Uh, an early restoration movement leader. He's convinced by Miller for a while. March 21st, 1844, there were people who had closed out their businesses, put on white, standing on hilltops, 
and nothing happened. Miller, is, you know, the math is right. Why, why didn't this take place? And so some of his followers, I mean, a lot of them left, right? This guy's wrong. But there were some that, that were still convinced by the math and, and said, oh, no, no, no. The, uh, the sanctuary was cleansed on the Day of Atonement. And so it must be that Jesus is coming back on the Day of Atonement. And so it was October 22nd is the day we should be looking for. So on October 22nd, 1844, the faithful once again gathered, fewer in number. And nothing happened again. And so Miller kind of just, you know, gives in. He, um, he'll die a couple years later um, convinced that the second coming was happening soon. There's a small group of his followers, though, that are convinced that he had the dates right. He just had something, he had what was going to take place wrong. See, they believe that the, the, the sanctuary was cleansed, but it was the sanctuary in heaven. And so Jesus had finished uh, his work as high priest and was now beginning to plead for the forgiveness of people's sins. They added that idea to a belief in the continued prophecy that a woman named Ellen Gold White had. And one of the prophecies that she had was that she had been allowed to see in heaven and she saw the Ten Commandments and one of the commandments was circled that said, keep the Sabbath holy. And so out of this doctrine of the advent of Christ, the second advent of Christ, with this notion of uh, observing the Sabbath day or the seventh day, seventh day Adventists were born out of this group. So you have, uh, you know, these people trying to come up with times. And, uh, you know, a similar thing happened with the the rise of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The man that's kind of the the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, although he never used that term, it comes in the 20th century, he too came out of this notion of uh, these, these, these prophetic books tell us the date of Christ, 1874. I mean 1878. I mean 1914. They kind of stopped after 1975. But even in the early 20th century, Jehovah's Witnesses were promoting the idea, millions now living will never die. And of course, there are not millions still around that were alive at that time. And so a lot of people with this expectation have these expectations that they've figured out the date. And often it's this combination of, well, you take this passage, and then you take this passage, and then you've got to take this passage over here, and then you know all sorts of calculations you have to do, you put them all together, and that gives you a date. Scripture doesn't work like that. But the belief is that you know, these, these dates will be revealed to the one that searches. However, not always is, has it been about dates. Sometimes it has been concerns about the way people are going theologically. 
One of the big developments in the field of science in the 19th century was Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection being the motivator for evolution. There were people that believed in evolution prior to Charles Darwin. Not a lot, but there were some. But it was Darwin's theory about how evolution took place that a lot of scientists grabbed onto and said, yes, this is how it works. There were a lot of religious people as well who said, oh, well, the scientists are believing this. This must be true. So we have to reinterpret how we understand the Bible. So if evolution is true, then Genesis 1 and 2 must be more figurative than literal. And so you have these people taking Darwin's notions and applying it to Scripture. But he had other people that were very, very concerned about Right? They, they believed in the truthfulness of Genesis. And they were concerned that if you start believing in evolution, then you're going to have moral problems, you're going to have theology problems. And out of these conservatives, one of the things that they came up with was this dispensational premillennialism, which is a lot harder to say than you think. Lord willing, we'll pick up with that in two weeks. Next week, remember, Mark's going to be teaching class. We'll have a little bit uh, of uh, finish up this, this historical survey and then talk about the end times. Patrick. Yeah. There's always this recalculation. All right. Very rarely is there, you know, I was wrong, I'm done. It's usually like, oh, I'm, I was wrong, here's the new number. Right. So next, uh, in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll finish this up and then move on to, are there signs that are going to take place prior to the end?